You're listening to the sermon from Sunday morning at The Crossing in Columbia, Missouri. Today, we're continuing our series through the Gospel of Luke. A while back, maybe a year or two ago, there was kind of a video on social media that went around explaining the dynamic of social media. And it was this, these two dogs fighting each other until the fence is taken away. I don't know if you've seen this. We'll watch a quick little version of it right here. I think one of the reasons why we like dogs so much is because they're so much like us in so many ways. And it is true. You know, there's all this courage on social media to say these terrible things as long as you're anonymous, as long as you're not in front of somebody face-to-face, but then you get in front of somebody face-to-face and it's a whole different demeanor. That's true. But my interest in that video is I think it's also true on a larger scale that it's kind of how we are in life. We kind of have this... We're kind of barking in life with confidence. Uh, as long as God blesses us, as long as things are going well, there's kind of a fence between us and real danger. We just kind of have this bark to our lives. But then when God kind of moves that fence and reality happens and we're vulnerable and things start to go wrong, we suddenly get humbled. When disruption happens in our life, it's not what we expect, it's not what we want. And we're powerless to do something about it. And we all of a sudden get a whole different demeanor. We're not so barky. We're not so cocky. We're not so confident. And it even is a time where we're open to maybe coming to Jesus more than we thought before and open to asking him to help us in some way, to to save us in some way. And today we're on chapter 7 in the Gospel of Luke, the third book in the New Testament. We've been going through Luke. And Chapter 7 is this, I think, really ingeniously written chapter by Luke to show us the kind of faith that Jesus loves, the kind of faith that saves, that, 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 that brings the power of Jesus in our lives. And, and this chapter ends with emphasizing that. The last words of this chapter are Jesus' words to a woman in verse 50 when he says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. In the original Greek, this is written in 2,000 years ago, that word for go, it doesn't just mean go. I don't know if Jesus was shooing her away as much as saying, it's a word that figuratively meant to walk, to, to live. It's a way of life. I think Jesus is saying, your faith has brought healing. Your faith has saved you. Live with shalom, he would have used the word shalom, this sense of well-being, this sense of flourishing, this sense of in spite of my circumstances, I can have something inside of me that is peace, live in peace. The question is, what kind of faith, there's all kinds of belief, there's all kinds of faith out there, but what kind of faith is the faith that Jesus would say that to you and me? That's what Luke is doing in chapter 7. He's giving us three stories to show us this kind of faith. 
And the first story is really super weird because it involves a Roman army commander who is asking Jesus to help him, which is not typical of what you see in the Gospels. Here's what it says in verse one. It says, Jesus entered Capernaum. That's the small village on the Sea of Galilee where Jesus spent most of his time. He, he lived there, his home base. And there is a centurion, there a centurion servant whom his master, the centurion, valued highly, was sick and about to die, just right near death. The centurion heard of Jesus. If he lived in Capernaum, he would have heard a lot about Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and to heal his servant. Now, now centurions, we know a lot about them because they were the main part of the Roman command structure. A centurion commanded about 80 to 100 Roman soldiers, and they would be chosen based upon their size, they would be chosen based upon their strength, and they would be chosen based upon their skills, their deadly skills in battle. In, in battle. So if you watch the show Reacher on Prime, that's kind of what a centurion is. They can handle themselves. And so this guy has an imposing, intimidating kind of presence physically, but he also represents the occupying army of Rome. And so he has this power that would make him a very intimidating person, but his power is powerless when the person he has a high esteem for is sick and about to die. And so he heard about the power of Jesus. But, but Jesus is an occupied Jew. He might not want to help an occupying army commander, so he sends elders of the Jews to represent him to Jesus. And, and so it says in the next verse four, it says, when they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. They say in verse six, so Jesus went with them and was not far from the house. Jesus goes, he's not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself. For I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. So you, know, you have the elder saying he deserves it. And the first thing out of his mouth is twice, I don't deserve to have you come to me. I'm not even worthy to come to you. So that's why I sent some people on, on my behalf and so it goes on, and it's, he goes on to talk about, uh, let's, go back, let's go back to the uh, other slide, I blew it, I forgot to mention this, that what's amazing is that the centurion is not just saying he's not worthy to come before an occupied Jew for help, that's really, that'd be super weird for a centurion to say, but it's how he addresses Jesus, because see, this word in the language, that, that meant master, Ruler, a Roman centurion, an occupying force, is calling an occupied Jew master, ruler. That would be treasonous if it got to the right ears because well, only Caesar is master, king, ruler. And the kind of ruler, the kind of master he believed Jesus was, and that's the next slide that I called for too early, he says to Jesus, but say the word. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes. I tell that one come and he comes. I say to my servant, 
do this and he does it. What he's saying is, just like I'm a commander of a Roman army and they do what I say, I can tell you have an authority over heaven and earth. You just command my servant from here and I know he's gonna be healed. Now just imagine him, Lord, I know you're the highest authority. Just say the word, say the command. And so Jesus does it. He, he, he heals his, his son. So let's, let's look at verse nine. It says, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Jesus said, wow. He was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith in this Roman commander. I've not found such great faith even in Israel. Even among God's people, I haven't found it. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. It was just as the centurion knew. All Jesus needed to do from wherever he was was just say the word, just give the command. He's Lord of heaven and earth. He's the master of everything. And he was healed. When Jesus says, wow, this Roman centurion really gets it. He has the faith that really gets it, the trust that really understands reality. He knows he doesn't deserve for me to do anything. And he also knows that I am Lord over everything and that my word is the authority of heaven and earth. You know, I, Jesus heals, I think he would have healed him anyway, but the, the amazing thing is he heals him just as the centurion said he could from far away, didn't even have to be there. It was just his command. But whatever it is that Jesus does in your life, the blessings, the saving, the helping, it's not at all because you deserve it. I mean, do you realize that? That you can't do anything to earn it. There's not a thing you do to earn it. There's not a ritual you go through to deserve it. There's not a, if I do this, he'll do that equation. That's not how it works. And, and, and sometimes you ask Jesus to do something and he doesn't do it. The answer is no. But if you understand his lordship over everything, then you understand he knows all the moving parts. And so you can trust his lordship in your life that if you knew what he knows, you would agree with his decision not to give it to you. You're trusting in his lordship. Now, I don't know. I mean, we have these things in our life where we think if we do this, Jesus would do that. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not how it works. You don't deserve it. But I am Lord. And if you just come to me, if I do it, it's because you don't deserve it. I'm just being gracious. If I don't do it, it's because I'm Lord and I'm being gracious. You just have to trust. But then Luke tells another story in verse 18, and it's just as surprising in a different direction. He tells the story of John the Baptist. We talked about him back in chapter 4, but now he's coming back into the story of Jesus. John, this is John the Baptist, not the Apostle John. John's disciples told him all about these things. Jesus healing this guy from a distance. And then Jesus also raises somebody from the dead in the story after that, before this one. And calling two of them, he sent them. John the Baptist is in prison. And so he's, he's calling two of his disciples and he sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? 
That's really bizarre because, see, I, we look back in chapter four, I preached a sermon on it. John the Baptist, this, this prophet that God had raised up to proclaim the coming one, and he's proclaiming the coming one, and one who's going to come and baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, and even now his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he's separating the wheat from the shaft. It was a big proclamation. But now, all of a sudden, John's not so sure. Jesus is the one to come. He's not so sure he's the Messiah that he so boldly, confidently was sure of back in chapter four. What happened? Well, it's, I mentioned it. Luke mentions it back in chapter four at the very end that, that he was put in prison. John doesn't know it, but he's actually gonna be executed in prison. Right now, he's just been in prison and he's Confused. It's not what he expected. With Jesus coming, the Messiah, him being in, John being in prison is not what he would expect his life to be like if Jesus really was who he had proclaimed that he was, if he was the Messiah. You ever, you ever think that? that? That something's happened in your life and it's not going at all like you thought it would and, and it even you, you pray about it and it gets worse, just like John, he, no doubt prayed about God freeing him from prison, but he eventually gets executed? Does that, has that happened in your life where, like John, you start doubting whether or not God is real, the Bible's true, Jesus is, because of, your life is not going as, at all as you expected. But, but notice Jesus' answer. Jesus answers John's question. Are you, are you the coming one, or should we expect somebody else? Jesus answers he sends back his messengers with this answer right here. Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. But blessed is anyone who does not stumble. John is stumbling on account of me. Now, how does Jesus answer John's doubt? Well, I kind of would have hoped he would have said, okay, I, my bad, go tell John, yes, I'm the Messiah. He doesn't give a definitive answer at all. He just says, well, just go back and tell him what you've seen and heard and let him draw his own conclusion. And I think that's how he does with our doubts as well. You know, we don't get this audible voice, yes, I'm here. We have to... Well, go back and be told what Jesus has said and done. We read the Gospels. I don't know if you've read any of the Gospels or not, but we can read the Gospels and we can read what Jesus has said and done and we can ask ourselves, did this really happen? And, and, and we draw our own conclusions. That's what Jesus did for John the Baptist. And I think that's what he does for us. And our doubts too. I love that John or excuse me, that Luke puts this story of John in the middle of his chapter on saving faith. What? He puts the story of John the Baptist's doubt in his chapter on saving faith? And I think the reason why is because John is a perfect example that you can have saving faith. John certainly does. I mean, Jesus, after this, praises him and is a great prophet, great man born among women, all this kind of stuff, but he had doubts. You can have saving faith and at the same time have doubts. You don't have to have one or the other. You have both. That's kind of how it works. I heard Tim Keller one time talk about it this, 
way. He was saying, you know, back in the second book of the Bible, way back in the Old Testament, when Moses was leading the Israelites out of their slavery in Egypt and they come up against the Red Sea, the Pharaoh and his army is chasing them, trying to kill them, take them back or whatever, and God parts the sea through Moses and the Israelites cross the Red Sea on dry ground, walls of water on both sides, and they come to, over to the other side. And Tim Keller, I thought, said rightly so, do you think the thousands of Jews all had really strong faith? Some no doubt did. Somebody, let's see the works of the Lord, and they step into the dry land between the walls of water, and they walk across. But you had to know among thousands. We actually know in the narratives, a lot of them have doubts. It really wasn't that you had to have strong faith to make it to the other side, because they all made it to the other side. Weak faith, strong faith, people that had faith with doubts, all made it to the other side. It wasn't the strength of your faith. It was, did you have enough faith? to take the step into the parted water and walk between walls of water to the other side. Now, you might be walking across, gosh, I hope this works, but then you get to the other side because it was enough faith that you stepped in. And I think it's kind of like that way with us here. You know, you, you, you have degrees of faith. We're all different at different times. And maybe you have 60% belief that the, the stuff Jesus said and did is true and he died on the cross and he rose from the dead and this is the narrative that matters. This, he's Lord of heaven and earth and what you do with Jesus is the most important thing you do in your entire life. And you believe that 60% because you've got some friends who are non-Christians, you've read some things recently and gosh, sometimes Christians are so embarrassing, you're not even sure. And so you have 40% doubt. But you've got 60% faith or maybe it's 80% and 20% doubt. I don't know, but the question is, which one are you gonna let direct your life? Are you gonna let the lesser percentage of your doubt decide what you're gonna do or not do? Or are you gonna let the greater percentage of your faith determine what you're gonna do or not do? The last story is the clincher because it kind of shows us what sometimes looks like faith but it's not the right kind of faith at all. It's a story, we read the last story of, of this, let's go ahead and put it on the screen. It says, when one of the Pharisees, is verse 36, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman, let me just say this, there's a table there, and reclined at the table, the way they ate back then was you, you laid on your side and you put your elbow up, and you're, the table's right here, and you're eating and talking, and your feet are stretched out away from the table. You don't want your feet near the table, and so you're, they're away from the table. So a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume as she stood behind him at his feet. She's away from the table, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Now, Luke has no, no interest in telling us the nature of her sin. He doesn't, doesn't specify at all. It's not important to him. But the Pharisee has immediately labeled her. The next verse says this, that when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, 
that she is a sinner. She's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. He goes on, he gives a little parable. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? What Jesus' little parable is doing here is blurring the lines between sinners and sinners. Blurring the lines between a real sinner and anybody who sins. He, he's, it's all the same, that, that, that neither has enough righteousness for God. Both, everybody, is bankrupt. And so what, what Jesus is doing there is he's pointing to Simon and saying, uh, you don't understand that you're part of the bankrupt people yourself. And he rebukes Simon the Pharisee for his lack of hospitality. And he praises this woman for her great love and her gratitude and devotion and all that. And so Jesus says in verse 47, he says, therefore I tell you, he says this to Simon, therefore I tell you, her many sins, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. See, Simon's the way he is, his self-righteousness, his pride, his critical, judgmental spirit, seeing other people as sinners, not seeing his own sin, self-righteousness, pride, judgmental, because he doesn't see himself as part of the many sins group. And that's why Jesus is not telling him his sins are forgiven, because he doesn't think he needs it. He's super religious, probably really knows his Bible very, very well, being a Pharisee. But it seems like he's the one that's not forgiven because he doesn't really sense his undeservedness because of his many sins. He just thinks he has a little, not a big deal, and so Jesus says those last words in this chapter. Verse 50, he says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go, live, walk in peace and shalom. See, he who, whoever thinks they're forgiven little is, is gonna have little peace in their lives because you think you have to deserve it. You think you have to earn it. You think you do deserve it. So your life is filled with self-righteousness and self-pity when you don't get everything you expect to get. And it's filled with a sense of judgmentalism and, and anger because your equation is completely opposite. You don't, well, like the centurion, you don't, you don't know that you don't deserve anything. And so you love little. You're not gracious, you're not merciful, you're not kind, you're judgy. You're, you're, you're critical, you're, you're self-righteous, and, 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 and you're just not going to have peace in your life when you don't understand you're part of the many sins group and you don't deserve for Jesus to do anything. This is why Jesus emphasizes the night before he's crucified, he emphasizes his death on the cross as what is the basis for his 
saving, helping, healing, restoring, ultimately resurrection of those who have saving faith in him. He says to his disciples, he takes the bread at the Passover meal and he says, this is my body given for you. He took the wine at the meal and he said, this is my blood which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. This is kind of the focal point. This is the night before he's going to be crucified and he's making the point that, well, it's, you don't deserve anything. It's Jesus giving himself on the cross to take your sin into death with him, to take death itself into death with him and to rise from the dead so that you can be saved, restored, rescued ultimately in your own resurrection when he returns. I, I, I don't know if you know how we do it here, but when you're ready, you would come forward and take a piece of bread that's in our hands and break it off and you would dip it in the wine that we're holding in our hands in the goblet or if you want grape juice, that's on the stool or if you want to get one of the plastic things that has bread and grape juice in it, you can just do that. You don't need to say anything. Those who are gonna help serve communion, would you come forward? Let me just say something real quick to kind of help you understand what this is. Let's go back to that story of the Israelites crossing the Red Sea. And it, it, it wasn't the perfection of their faith that got them across. It was whether or not they had a, enough faith to take that step forward into the water that's been divided. I, I think this works that way too. I, I don't think you're gonna have perfect faith when you come forward. The question is, do you have enough faith that you, you can't earn this, you're not worthy or deserving of it, that you depend upon Jesus' sacrifice for you and you trust in his lordship. He is Lord of heaven and earth and you want him to be your Lord. And, and so you're, it's not 100%, you're taking enough faith to take a step. You have enough faith to take that step and come forward and take the bread and the wine to remind you of who he is and what he's done for you. So people of God, when you're ready, come to the table of the Lord. We hope this sermon was encouraging. You can always visit our website, thecrossingchurch.com, for more sermons and resources.